The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, comes from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hands and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand your word, which you proclaim to us. We pray, God, that you would use these faltering lips of your servant to clearly proclaim the good news of Christ Jesus. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every great story has a villain. I mean, uh, what would Luke Skywalker be without Darth Vader to contend with? Uh, or, or Batman's fight for justice be without the Joker? Superman against Lex Luthor. Even in literature, we see this, you know, Robin Hood against the prince uh, or the, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham. Tom Sawyer, who is constantly pursued by Injun Joe. I mean, you name a great story and there will be a clear villain in it. I would even take that uh, assertion a step further and say that any story that you love, uh, some villain or some great obstacle is there within that story that needs to be overcome. That is true no matter what kind of story you encounter, whether it's fiction or not. Consider, you know, the examples that we see in real life, the firefighters fighting uh, against, or, or the firefighters who we idolize because they battle an inferno in order to rescue children from its clutches. Against overwhelming odds, these men put their life on the line to save others. Policemen who take on the mafia, or even doctors who save Lives. There is always some enemy that you can point lurking in the background in these stories. We marvel at these people who are faced with some kind of overwhelming opposition and they struggle against it and then they come out on top. Heroes, victorious champions. Some might even say that the villain makes a hero. What makes a hero a hero? What makes a man willing to stand for what is right when no one else will do? What makes a man willing to battle insurmountable odds, no matter what they may be, and come out victorious on top? And people of God, this morning, as we continue to move through the book of Genesis, in many senses, As you come to the chapter 3, that is what we are supposed to see here. I mean, as we come to this text of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve encountered the deceiver, what we are supposed to witness, what the story uh, seems to build toward, is you are to see one standing up for the kingdom of God. This one who stands up and does what is right. This man who represents an entire human race who is to lead in righteousness. 
What we are supposed to see, what you expect to see in this encounter is one guarding the kingdom of, this, of his Lord that has been established in the first two chapters of Genesis. This holy temple is to be guarded against deceit and lies, protecting God's realm from oppression. We're supposed to see a rise of a hero. But what we ought to witness and what actually transpire are radically different events. We don't, in fact, witness the rise of a hero in this story. Rather, we see the fall of our champion. Our text opens up, and the first thing we see is the fall of our hero. The fall of our hero. Right away, the narrative seems to take an abrupt abrupt shift from the previous two chapters. Uh, Leading up to this text, there has been a focus on God's people and on God's place, the things that God has made good in this world. There is a focus on the good and perfect communion that God and man have together as relational beings. How man could even be in the presence of God because he was righteous and holy. It was all very good And all was right in the world. And yet you come to Genesis 3 and suddenly we're introduced to this new character. And right away, uh, we know this isn't going to be good. Uh, You don't even have to read the whole narrative to figure this out. All you have to do is compare verse 25 from chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 1 and hold them uh, together. And this strong comparison arises And it becomes apparent that we are being introduced to the villain of the story. As Moses writes about Adam and Eve, he says, And the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And then the very next line in the story reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the fields. Clear contrast is being drawn between these two. In one corner... We have the innocence of mankind, perfection of man apart from sin, innocent in every way. And in the other, a creature who is crafty and cunning, one who is a clever creature spinning his own designs. It seems as though you're setting up for a fight for the ages. Uh, You know, this is a Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed moment. And this villain, this serpent of old, has come to prey on innocent children. I mean, the text is making it painfully clear how vulnerable these two are in that contrast together. It's almost as though uh, that image Christ uses when he sends out his 12 disciples to minister in his name uh, is in mind here. He says, uh, Christ says, be as innocent as doves. And as wise as serpents, only here, as opposed to in that text in the, in the Gospels, these two images are contrasted against one another. It's not one person holding them together, but it is each character holding one of those particular traits. And we all know what happens when a snake encounters a dove that is unsuspecting and ripe for the taking. It seems to be implied, even as you come into this text where there is a battle being waged, that we are going to be witnesses to this horrible end where Satan deceives and ruins these innocent ones. 
And clearly, Satan is the one who is the deceiver in this particular text. Though our text uh, calls him a serpent. If you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and 20, it refers to the same one, Satan, as the great dragon, that ancient serpent of old. Each text focused, pointing back to this ancient moment in the history of the world. Here stands one who represents everything that God does not. Whereas God is true and righteous, this one is false and wicked. He is God's adversary in every sense of that particular word. He is seeking to strike a blow against God himself in whatever way he may find. The serpent of old stands in opposition to everything good and right in the world. He stands in opposition to God himself. And as the serpent approaches these Innocence ones, you already recognize this battle that is already or beginning to take place. And we find ourselves rooting for the serpent's head to be crushed because you know he is a crafty character that he will be, you desire for him to be cast down from the holy mountain of God by the one who has been put in charge of this holy place. And yet the serpent is crafty for a reason. He doesn't approach the protector of the realm directly. He comes at him sideways through his vulnerable point. You know, that's the way Satan always seeks to deceive. He never comes head on. That would be too obvious. You know, we would never listen to his voice. Instead, he has this conversation with Adam's helpmate, one who Adam loves, one who he cares for, one who he uh, holds near and dear, and ultimately, he deceives Adam through her. And the story, or the, the history, opens up, and Satan says to the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Hath God said, Has God really said this thing to you? Beloved, you are... Uh, watching a master deceiver at work. Make make no bones about it. Notice, he doesn't confront God's word head on, but he twists God's word. He actually uses God's word and then twists it, changing one word in his sentence and making the whole thing seem utterly ridiculous. Did God actually say you couldn't eat of any of this good fruit that is pleasing to the eye? Oh, he just said, don't touch it. I wonder, why? Why would he do such a thing? It is, looks just as good as the rest of the fruit. What a ridiculous commandment God has given. And little by little, the serpent is eroding Eve's confidence in the word of God. God speaks, and in his words are life. And yet here is one who is causing mankind to question the words of God, the good and true words of God, to question his very goodness, the very character of God is at stake here in this uh, deceiver's mouth. Why would God limit you from all of these trees? And Eve responds and says, he told us not to eat or or touch it lest we die. It's interesting, Eve herself Even as she is correcting, the serpent seems now to be subtly twisting God's words, though it may not be intentional on her part. God only said, you shall not eat, for on that day you will die. 
you will surely die. But Eve here is adding, he said not to touch the fruit. One uh, student of the Bible notes that it seems to emphasize uh, her wavering. And so she tries to be extra pious and declares that she won't even touch this particular fruit that has been commanded not to be eaten. And Satan, sensing what is going on, mocks her. And that is uh, what is going on. It is scorn at the utmost. He's got his foot in the door now. He sees that he has caused rise for doubt, and he openly denies God's word and entices her with something that she cannot refuse to listen to. He says, you shall not surely die. Notice how now he takes God's word and he flips them directly upon their head, denying them explicitly and outright. God said, on that day, you shall, if you eat it, you shall not, or you shall, did you whiz? God said, on that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the serpent is denying this, saying, you will not die. He expressly denies God's word and promises now, in fact, that the seeds or makes a promise based on this denial. Satan is seeking to unravel the good commandments of God. And in the same stroke, he denies the reality of judgment and death for those who disobey God. The father of lies stands before you, O people of God. And as befits his character, he tells another half-truth. You know why God told you not to eat of this particular fruit, didn't you? You understand what he's doing He doesn't want you to eat the fruit because when you do, you will know good and evil and what they are. And then he holds out the juiciest morsel, the most enticing bait possible. He says, and then God is worried that you will be like God. The better way of translating it, as I read it, is you will become as gods. So many things are going on here, but notice first off that this usurper steps into the place of God himself, opposing everything that he stands for, and he makes these creatures his own promise, much like when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness saying, bow down to worship me and all that is before you is yours. He says, eat this fruit and you will become greater than God. You will become God's yourself. You don't need God. You can become more than creatures. You can usurp the power of God himself, become greater than him. You don't need God. And all you need to do is ignore his word and seize what sits before you. Take hold of it. It's the oldest line in the book, literally. You don't need God's word. You don't need To hear God's promises, you don't need God's provision. He turns their eyes away from everything that God has created, from all the good things that he has given to them, and he focuses in on the one thing that he commands us not to do. And he says, if you do this one thing, you will become like gods. Calvin says, Satan promised them divinity. As if he has said, God defrauds you of the tree of knowledge for no other reason than he fears you. He fears what you can become. He fears that you will become greater than them. He fears to be usurped by one who would be greater than him, who will rule this world 
greater than he can. Satan's strokes are pride, our pride that says, I can become more than a man. I can become greater than a creature. I can raise myself higher than God. I don't need him. Who needs him anyway? And we question God's goodness, wondering, is everything God made truly good? Why does he hold me back? Why can't I enjoy all these other things that he says no to? And so Eve looks upon the tree, this one thing kept from humanity with new eyes. She looks differently at this tree that is before her. They would be made gods if they eat, according to this old wise serpent. And the text says she looked She beheld it, and it was delightful to her, and it enticed her. It was desirous to be made wise, and she took and she ate, and she gave some to Adam. This high priest over God's place who has stood by silently this entire time, he was present during this entire dialogue, listening to this one questioning everything God has said. And instead of casting out this usurper and rebuking the woman for heeding his word, he takes and he eats, raising himself up in opposition to God. He is fully confident that any moment from now, as he partakes of this fruit, he will now become divine for disobeying God's words and listening to this wise serpent. And our hero falls as from the heavens. Our hero is fallen, and suddenly their world comes crashing down around them very quickly, and we behold the judgment of God. The judgment of God. In verse 8, Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and it sounds all very casual and nice. You know, God is out for this little stroll looking at the pretty flowers and animals, and yet suddenly Adam and Eve are terrified to meet their maker. They hide themselves because they realize that God has come here in judgment. The sound of God coming, actually many commentators uh, argue, is God coming against them. This is the sound of God coming to judge and make war with lightning and thunder. Some actually refer to this whole scene as the day of the Lord, the day when God comes to judge the righteous and the wicked alike, to separate them out from each other. And the scene begins to unfold, and it looks very much like a courtroom scene. God begins to ask them questions. He's cross-examining those who have been accused, looking to uncover the truth so that he might judge rightly between them. Of course, he doesn't need to ask what happens. He is God, but he does so to demonstrate his righteous judgment and Adam's failure. Adam, you'll notice, is the first one he questions. As the head over this, uh, this place, God's place and his realm And Adam, as he is questioned, he begins to play this blame game. He is shifting the problem from himself to everybody else. You know, this is uh, nothing new in the world of sin. It's not my fault. It's the woman. She gave it to me, and I ate. It's her fault mostly. Yeah, I did eat it. But actually, God, if you think about it, it's your fault, not me, not her even. You gave her to me after all. 
Alienation begins to spring up here in this world after Adam's confession. Adam is now separated from his wife. He is separating himself from his own flesh and blood, this one who is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, who was one with him in a perfect world, and now he is alienating himself from her instead of protecting her. What is even more important is God, or Adam is alienating himself from God, blaming him for his own particular failures. Well, I wouldn't have sinned if it wasn't for you. I mean, why make something so enticing if I can't have it? You made me this way, and I cannot contend with that. You put these desires within me. It's not my fault. I can't help myself. And Adam tries to lighten the blow of judgment to himself by throwing his wife and God under the bus as though sin is not our own responsibility, but everyone else around us is, is as though sin stems from our environment, not from our own hearts. And God moves on in his questioning, and he comes to Eve, who, like her husband, blames the serpent. He tricked me. It's not my fault. I mean, if anything is clear in this scene that's unfolding, it's that innocence, that innocence that was prior to the entrance of a crafty serpent has been lost. No longer is the world as it should be. The relationship between God and man has been breached. The relationship between man and wife is one of estrangement, and the covenants of God have been broken and shattered. And now even man's relationship with the creatures Instead of having dominion over them, this relationship has been reversed and the dominion is of the creature over the man. And so God pronounces his divine verdict. He has heard their cases and he judges accordingly. To the serpent, he curses him, telling him he is cursed. Above all the creatures of the earth, he will crawl upon his belly and there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. To the woman, he says, your childbirth will increase in pain greatly. Physical pain will become a way of life. And she will seek no longer to submit to her husband rightly, but, in order, but to rule over him. And instead of caring for her as he ought to, man will dominate over her. He will trample her down. And finally... To the man, the one who was the guard, the one who was our champion, the one who was to protect and keep God's place, this good earth, man is to be estranged from the very ground in which he came from. The ground that before would yield under his hand now will bring forth thorns and thistles. Again, pain if it's emphasized here. In pain you will eat of it. Toil will be your daily Portion because you have disobeyed and eaten. That is what I will curse. Your eating itself will become toilsome now. By the sweat of your brow will you eat bread. And this struggle that now exists between man and the earth culminates in man's death where he finally succumbs to the ground that he wrestles to have dominion over and he is swallowed by it. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. From dust you came to dust, you shall return. Pain 
and death and suffering all become part of this world now. Separation from God, separation from one another, alienation, that is the fruit that has been born of this particular moment, and all seems lost. God would have been well within his rights. He would have been in his full rights to scrap his creation and start all over again, casting them into a final judgment without any excuse or room for escape. And yet here, in the midst of the fall, in the midst of God's judgment, is left a hope of escape. Right in the middle of this story. Right after God pronounces judgment upon these two, he sends them away from the garden He sends them out from this temple of the Lord again, away from his presence, away from before his face. And he does so, the text says, so that man does not eat of the tree of life. Basically, the point here is so that man doesn't remain in his state of sin and misery. For if he were to partake of that tree, he would remain in his state of fallenness forever. And God places a holy angel to guard and protect this place that none may find their way to it again. And yet in between God's pronouncement of judgment upon mankind and his banishment from the presence of God into the wilderness, out away from this holy temple, we hear this very odd declaration about Adam naming his wife Eve and being clothed in garments. And it's a very strange way to broke up the flow of this narrative. Why in the midst of pronouncing judgment and banishment from a land, talk about a name for Eve or the clothes that they are to wear? It should be clear and plain. They disobeyed God. They were cast out. End of story. That's all, folks. And yet it's here. But what purpose does it serve? What reason does does it stand here before us? People of God is here to declare that there is hope right in the middle of this judgment and ultimately estrangement from God. We see a man who believes something God has just pronounced. He has taken hold of something that he heard just a moment ago and he will now live in faith according to that particular promise. Adam names his wife Eve, which means life. Though they are sentenced to death, And pain, Adam has heard God say something that he is to believe upon by faith and rest. And and Adam knows and rests in the promise for life to come out of death. That somehow God is going to make things right. That he's going to right Adam's failure. And so he in faith names Eve life. For from her womb will come a seed, a child who will crush the head of this particular serpent and bring them life. Eve will bear an offspring who will destroy that serpent of old. And then you'll notice in the text, God clothes them in in a garment. Their own garments of fig leaves were inadequate to do the job. They could not cover their shame. And so God himself does it for them. He takes it upon himself to cover their sin and their shame. And the text implies that for God to cover their nakedness, something else had to die. A sacrifice of some kind has to be made. Dear children of God, 
Adam surely has made a mess of this world. His pride and our own separate us from God. His pride, which is the root of all sin, even in our own lives. Pride separates us from one another, from our God himself. We think we can do things on our own and we act like we don't need God and then we can, that we can fix ourselves and do just fine without him. We even blame God when things go wrong as though it's his fault. And yet here, despite the pride of man, despite the punishment that has been brought upon Adam and all his offspring, God makes a promise that one day he will make all things right. He makes a promise that one day a son of Adam will come from the loins of Adam himself and he will crush the head of Satan. He will cast him out of the temple of God. He will be the victorious champion. He will do what Adam failed to do. His son will succeed the father. He would not listen to the words of the devil. He would not be deceived or tempted But he would answer Satan with the authority of the word of God, the authority from heaven above. Even as he does in Matthew 3 in the wilderness, he is tempted and yet he remains without sin. And Adam sees this promise that God is making. He doesn't know all the implications for it. He cannot understand the full extent. And yet he by faith humbles himself and believes what God says. The life will come out of this death and this pain and this toil. No longer is he raising himself up in defiance against God, seeking to usurp him, but now he does what he ought to have done all along. He repents and believes and he has faith in the word of God that God will do what he has promised. Though this world has been cursed by Adam's sin, and we see it all around us every single day of our lives, Though this curse is here, God has promised to deliver from, or these two, from out of the barren wilderness that they have been cast into. And he will do so through a son, through a deliverer, through a champion. And yet, even this text tells us it is not without a cost. Just as these animals were slain to cover man's shame, so too, without the shedding of blood, can there be no remission for sins. And so God sends forth his own son, the seed of the woman, the very lamb of God to be sacrificed for our sins. He lays down his life for the sheep that they may live. And upon his, his brow, you will notice a crown of thorns, a symbol of the fullest extent of the curse upon this world. He undoes our failures. And he sets his prisoners free. The people of God go free in him. People of God, may we humble ourselves. May we turn from our pride that separates us from the love of God. Our pride that tells us we don't need him. That we can do just fine without him. May we turn in repentance of our pride, which is the root of all of our sin. And in faith And believe, trust in the promises of God, resting in the reality that he sent forth a mighty champion to destroy that villain of old. And once 
and for all, that very dragon we read in Revelation will be cast into the fiery pit and done away with forevermore. May we turn and trust in the merits and great accomplishment of our Savior anew, not as though we've never believed it before, but trusting wholeheartedly, more deeply, in the conquering Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, of which we are the foremost sinners. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, what more can we say? But we praise and thank you for the work of redemption that has been accomplished on our behalf. We praise you that the Father has been, or that the Father draws us, that the uh, Christ has interceded on our behalf, and His merits plead a better word before you for our sakes. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that seals us to the day. Of, of, of judgment. We pray, God, that you would increase our faith to rest wholeheartedly in the promises of God, knowing that with you and in Christ, those promises are yes and amen. You have surely accomplished them. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith in these things. And we pray that you would tear down the idols in our hearts that separate us from the love of God, that separate us from you. For Father, only you can give us living water. Anywhere else we turn to is nothing but a dry cistern. We ask God that you would give us the bread of life, manna from heaven, Christ Jesus, and him crucified. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.